Hello, this is Susan Harris, one of the bloggers at GardenRat.com. You're listening to 1590 WCGO, Chicago's Smart Talk. The Mike Nowak Show starts in 3, 2, 1. In 1937, there were 14 whooping cranes. They live in Canada in the summer and migrate 2,500 miles to the Aransas Refuge in Texas in the winter. They're a tall, majestic bird, our tallest, as a matter of fact. Well, now, uh, did you say there were 2,500 of them? That doesn't seem like they're too endangered. No, there are 74 of them now. 2,500 is the number of miles they migrate from Canada to uh, Texas at the Aransas Refuge. And uh, they eat... They're they're rednecks, you say? No. No. No, they have red-crowned heads. Their plumage is white, uh, mainly, but they do have black wingtips. They eat snails and shrimp, blue plate crabs, and some weeds. And the whoop can be heard up to half a mile. Well, now, uh, uh, where do they get these uh, blue plate specials they eat? <laughs> no, there again, you're wrong. It's blue plate crab is one of the uh, sea shellfish which they do eat, along with snails, uh, shrimp, and uh, some plant life. Uh-huh. You can hear the whoop up to half a mile, I believe I told you. <laughs> Do they communicate with one another? Do they make a sound? They make, uh... Live from a cul-de-sac somewhere in Evanston, Illinois, it's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. 20 years and counting as Chicago's go-to deep green gardening and environment program. Heard every Sunday morning on Chicago's Smart Talk. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome at 847-A new secure line has been opened for communication. 877-711-5611. Now back to American Radio Broadcast. On Facebook and Instagram at the Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. And here they are. She's lean and he's green. Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Good planets are Welcome to the Mike Novak. Wow, that was kind of welcome. <laughs> Did I just wake up? No. Are you no. a little froggy? Today? Yeah, I'm just a, a little bit froggy. I guess. I don't uh, have a mic. That'll that'll. You don't have a. I can't hear you're, myself. You're there. You're there. there. Okay. You're there. Just need to. You're a little tweak, froggy. Tweak the Herb it. Uh, the deals. Here, oh, I and I don't even have the box with the frog in it. I, uh, Aww. Did I not bring it in here? No? No frog. It's in the other box. However, I can pull out one of these. Uh, New Year's early. <laughs> All right. It's New Year's somewhere. Yeah. No, I don't think it is, actually. Maybe it is. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And uh, we're, we're, we're going in a different path today. 
uh, because we we like to discuss different stuff. For, for, for instance, if we look behind me, let's see. I don't even know if that's on. They're still, no, I, I don't, we, we are not on Facebook Live at the moment. We will be shortly. Oh, what happened? Um, okay. All right. So uh, so we were going to point out the yeah, lovely marmot not, over I'm, your I'm shoulder. I'm not pointing out anything anymore because <laughs> we're not on Facebook Live. Okay. Old school. <laughs> yeah, the A&M Radio. And some of you listening on the podcast, and we appreciate that. You can always find that at MikeNovak.net. Uh, we're going in a slightly different direction today. Uh, we are um, um, not de- diving into the world of plants. We're not even diving into the world of animals on land. It's um, we're, we're going off the edge of but the earth. But we're diving. Yes, we are. Exactly. Uh, and uh, in a couple of ways, uh, the first hour... Uh, we are going to talk about Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. And and we got this book, um, you know, we get pitched on stuff occasionally. And I saw this and I went, hmm, this this actually sounds interesting because people use seaweed uh, in their soil amendments. They use it in their cooking. You probably have seaweed recipes uh, or, or, or use – you brought kelp mm-hmm. something here and it's not to feed your fish. It's – it, it's a iodine. Iodine. It goes well on, on salads. You can put it in soups. What is it? It's can, kelp granules? It, this is kelp granules, so it's the kelp flakes. Yikes. So it's kelp well, flakes. Okay. Does it add taste? Uh, it adds a little taste. It adds a little salty, sweet taste uh-huh. to, say, sprinkle it on top of a and salad. And it says excellent iodine source. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that happens in this book by Susan Hans Shetterly, Seaweed Chronicles. You see the word iodine pop up a lot. In there, and the, her whole deal is about what we're doing uh, with uh, in terms of start, just starting in the United States, although it's been done across the world for a long time. Harvesting seaweed, what does that mean here? And part of it comes out of the the depletion of our fish stocks. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, led to seaweed. Uh, she writes a real, real interesting thing that I will bring up uh, bef- uh, before long too long. Long trail to follow. Yeah, and uh, um, it, I'm very excited to have her on the program because it's a terrific book. And then in the second hour, uh, we follow along that same thing with trout in the classroom. So it's not at the sea; it's here in freshwater, right here in Illinois, teaching kids how to raise trout and then release them. It's kind of cool. And they're they're going to be in studio. So all that's happening today on the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We hope you're part of it. From boat to doorstep, you can have the best in premium and sustainable Alaskan seafood right here in the Midwest. Sitka Salmon Shares is an Alaskan community-supported fishery, or CSF, comprised of small boat family fishermen from southeast Alaska. They're supported by 4,000 CSF members, and you can be one, too. Sign up at SitkaSalmonShares.com to receive fresh Alaska salmon, whitefish, and more in shares ranging from three to nine months. Use promo code MikeNovak18 for $25 off. Go to SitkaSalmonShares.com. Streets Alive returns to Main Street in Evanston on Sunday, September 9th from 1 to 5 p.m. And the Mike Novak Show is once again a proud sponsor. There's live music, crafts, pollinator garden tours, bubbles, chalk art, painting, sports demos, delicious food from street vendors, and the Evanston Green Living Festival for folks looking for products, services, and ideas that promote sustainable lifestyles. As always, Main Street will be open for people to walk, bike, scooter, and skate. For details, visit evanstonstreetsalive.org. 
Have you ever walked into a hair salon and been overwhelmed by the smell of chemicals? Well, that's never going to happen at Organic Roots Eco Salon. They use only the safest, most natural professional hair products available to make sure you get great color results that last and won't harm the environment or you. Their salon products and services are free from ammonia, formaldehyde, and other toxins typically found in hair color, perms, and keratin smoothing treatments. Organic Roots also offers a complete menu of safe straightening treatments, including the non-toxic Magic Sleek and Cezanne Keratin Smoothing products that let you shampoo the same day. They even repurpose hair clippings, recycle product containers, and use LED lighting. Now that's green. Walk into 21st Century Hair Care for women and men at Organic Roots Eco Salon, 3417 Dempster in Skokie. Book your appointment at organicrootsecosalon.com or call 847-423-2653. Health and beauty. You no longer have to sacrifice one for the other. Need that on a Sunday oh, yeah. morning. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And we're very pleased this morning uh, to have a very special guest who's written a very special book. Her name is Susan Hand Shetterly. She is the author of Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. Just released. I'm very pleased to say uh, that the book just came out a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I was happy that we were able to get our hands on it and that we were able to get Susan on the phone. So, uh, Susan, good morning and and welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, And now you're out Maine way. Are you are you in Maine today? Yes, I am. And in your establishment out there, your um, I was reading a little bit about you in your bio. A couple of things, a couple of things you wrote that actually uh, made me feel better about myself. Um, oh. <laughs> which is, what are they? Uh, one was that you you wrote something about having gone out to uh, to pioneer out in Maine with your husband uh, and sort of wandering into this space. Uh, with uh, eyes uh, wide open, but not a lot of experience, and learning, it sounds to me like some pretty hard lessons pretty early on. Well, yes, we were part of the Back to the Land movement, and I did write about that in my book called Settled in the Wild. Yeah. And I guess it was pretty pretty funny, except around February when it was... (laughs) pretty cold. Yeah, and I have not uh, I have to admit I haven't read that book. So, uh I was I was taking hints from from other things I had read about you and I thought, you know, it sounds exactly like the kind of thing I would do. Um uh, just <laughs> learn learn the hard lesson that way. Right. Uh, well, we were people who had learned a lot from books, and I think what we were given and I consider that time an enormous gift, even though it was often hard, was we learned um, from people who learned from experience, who paid attention out on the water. It's a different kind of education, and it has very practical applications, and it requires paying close attention. And so living in a small town on the coast of Maine was an education for both of us. 
And the second yeah. thing that I read that also gave me hope for myself was uh, <laughs> and th- and th- thank you for putting these these things down in print um, was that when you started writing your current book seaweed chronicles a world on the water's edge uh, you wrote in your blog over four years ago i began research for a book about seaweeds i knew about them only because i live by the shore and they are part of the daily landscape high tide and low and i thought Okay, this again kind of sounds like me. It's something that's in your own backyard, but sometimes you have to then go out and research what's right in front of your nose to understand it. Is is that correct? Absolutely. Um, you're a very good reader. Um, you're <laughs> I'm, I'm very pleased you read my book. Um, actually, I feel that I had an apprenticeship for about five years mm-hmm. writing this book, and the people on the shore who were involved in issues about seaweed, not always directly about seaweed, but um, that they were my teachers. Mm-hmm. And even though I had lived here, it doesn't mean that I knew about that uh, anything really much about seaweed, except, you know, I did put it on my garden. <laughs> well, and that's and that's the connection to our show. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, we were talking before the break, Peggy and I, about what does seaweed have to do with anything in particular for somebody in the Midwest part of the United States, or let's say in in the High Plains, uh, someplace else in a forest. Uh, what does seaweed have to do with us? And as your book brilliantly indicates, it has everything to do with us because. It's um, it's it's reality. There's the reality of the seaweed, but it's also a metaphor for everything else we do on this planet with regard to our natural resources. Um, and we have learned some lessons uh, about that, uh, you know, in terms of our forests, in terms of invasives. Uh, and there, and mostly, I, I, sadly, I think we have not learned our lessons and we have an opportunity once again, and that's one of the things that you, you, you do in the book, you're very optimistic about where we, how we move forward. Um, we have an opportunity here to get it right for once. And uh, if we don't, there will be huge consequences because, lordy, we're just going through resources one by one across this planet. And as we despoil them, we, we, we scratch our heads and say, well, maybe we'll get it better next time. And well, here we are. We're, we're upon another one, and that's, that resource is seaweed. Um, and um, that's what you write about. And let me say, and, I, and I'm talking a lot here, but I do want to say before we get it to your part of it that the book is brilliantly written. It's beautifully mm-hmm. written. Um, it's, oh, it, it is um, a, wonderful, it's a wonderful journey. Uh, you're, you're gentle and coaxing, and you bring people through it. Uh, you don't you don't whoop them upside the head with uh, too much science, uh, although you have plenty of it in there, and that's that's also good. You're not you're not afraid <laughs> of uh, of uh, binomial nomenclature by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it's also important to know that there are things uh, that have common names out there as well, because most people, they don't know anything about seaweed. Okay. Unless you live around the ocean. I don't, I didn't know anything about seaweed. So I'm, I was learning, um, about, uh, all the different names of plants. Uh, the, you know, I, for one thing, 
let's start here. Let's let's explain what seaweed is uh, before we even get into the issue of how we're managing it or not managing it. What is seaweed and how is it different? Is it a plant? Is it an animal? Because that's a big deal right now out on the coast uh, in terms of harvesting. So give us some of the basics. Yeah, give us some of the basics of seaweed. Well, seaweed is very simply an alga or or seaweeds are algae. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have um, macroalgae and microalgae, and the microalgae are these one-celled um, uh, algae that live, that, that float out in the ocean. They also float on freshwater. And I was just listening to the news this morning, and there have been a lot of fish kills down in um, Florida because some of these um, things that float in the water are actually toxic. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but some of them. And then the fish eat them and they die. The macroalgae are the seaweeds that are anchored, most often are anchored to the shore, mm-hmm. i.e. sometimes they're not, um, such as the uh, Sargasso Sea. That's a beautiful, magical place, which I've read about and never been to. But that is um, seaweed that is free-floating and can um, grow and just on its own. It, it doesn't need to anchor and go through some of the things that other algae on the shore go through. But the seaweeds that I was t- am talking about are usually anchored to the shore with something called a holdfast, and they're not roots. The holdfast just holds the seaweed in place, and it needs a hard surface. And then the seaweed just reaches up through the water and... Um, to find sunlight so it can practice photosynthesis, which is the same thing, obviously, land plants practice as well. But <laughs> it has a different way of doing it, mm-hmm. which is every cell in its body is performing the task of photosynthesis, unlike, um, for instance, a tree where the leaves do that and the tree has roots in it sucks up the water from the roots and, you know, it has all those complicated systems and the seaweed is just there doing that whole job, each cell of it. Is that, is that a good explanation? Yeah. Have, mm-hmm. Are you still with me? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, no, no, I, I, I totally am. I, I, and, that's, and that's a wonderful uh, description of how those plants work. And, and as you describe them, you said the word photosynthesis, which... Has right. to mean has to mean they're plants. They're really not animals, uh, because uh, unless do we know of animals that perform photos, photosynthesis? I'm not sure. Uh, now there's a very good question, and you know what? I can't answer it. All I can tell you is that the very first thing that was alive on our Earth was called a cyanobacteria, mm-hmm. and that was a one-celled bacterium that actually did photosynthesis. Mm. So, uh, it, and we still have that today. So, um, yeah, we do. Uh, there, there are a couple of animals, including sea slugs, that that can perform. That can perform. Oh, that they do too. Mm-hmm. Spotted salamander. Yeah, according to the University of okay. Michigan, the sea slug is one of the few photosynthesizing animals. 
So there there are some rare occasions, but generally... Oh, I'm so glad you told me that. <laughs> <laughs> Our job is done here. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> See, you learn something new every day, and it'll go into your next book. Uh, so there we have these uh, these remarkable plants without roots that every cell is at work doing uh, a similar job for the plant. The plant grows. Mm-hmm. They grow to great lengths, um, and they provide nutrients and habitat. Um, uh, they also affect, uh, I would imagine, they affect currents. Um, and all kinds of things. You talked about the Sargasso Sea. Um, what I found myself doing as I was reading uh, the, the book, in the old days, I would have had gone to a, 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 an atlas to see what you were talking about. What I was able to do is I had my cell phone next to me, and you would mention these places, and then I would Google map it yeah. and just say, okay, where's that? And I, I've known about the Sargasso Sea for Probably my whole life, I've heard the word, read about it, had no idea where it was uh, or what it was. And then I went, okay. So I, I did a little sidebar and, and, and read about it. And, and you allude to it in your book and you talk about it. And it's kind of surprising that there's a sea out there that doesn't really, isn't that defined by land masses, that it's defined by other water, by currents and, and other seas. Uh, I had no idea, and there it is out in the middle of the Atlant- Atlantic, and it's, it's a very special place, isn't it? It's a very special place, and the reason I was interested in it even before I wrote a book on seaweed is uh, I'm interested in American eels because mm-hmm. the population of eels has plummeted both in the United States and in Europe, the European eel is very much like the American eel, and they migrate north in the same sort of uh, circular way. Um, and we've been over-harvesting them. And the only place in the world that we know where they breed is somewhere beneath the Sargasso Sea. Mm-hmm. So what they do is when they're mature, and Annie Dillard wrote about this years ago in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, and it was a beautiful uh, a beautiful chapter in which she talk, talked about how they got ready for their migration in, in the early winter, and they slid out of our lakes and streams, and they went into the ocean, and they went very, very deeply in the ocean down to the Sargasso Sea, and they bred there, and then they died. So they spawned, and the only reason we know that that's where they went is we began to see, we, not I, obviously, but scientists, began to see these leaf-like creatures kind of wobbling around in the sargassum, and they turned out to be baby eels, but they didn't Mm -hmm. look like eels. And then they were picked up by the Gulf Current and taken along our eastern seaboard, And as they were swept along, some of them peeled off and went into streams and went into ponds, and so the cycle started all over again. They're very mysterious, Mm -hmm. and I'd hate to lose them before we knew more about them. 
Well, well, we we have a habit of doing that on this planet. We uh, we discover things just before they go extinct, that sort of thing. And uh, although I think you're right, uh, it, it's it's just a it's a very bad habit yeah. we have here, and yeah. which takes us to the nature of your book. And one of the things you do so well is you. I love the way you lay it out. You you your your argument is is presented in a way. Uh, you you start with the depletion of our fishes, uh, the bluefin, the whales, tuna, halibut, cod, haddock, herring, lobster, scallops. I mean, on and on and on, and uh, and how we made our way through there and went, okay, those are gone. So what do we got left? Oh wait, I know, there's seaweed. We can harvest that. And um, uh, unfortunately, the seaweed is habitat for a lot of those fish mm-hmm. and for other fish and for fish that provide food sources for those other fish. And we really don't know uh, much about seaweed. Yeah. And that's the other point you make throughout the book is, hey, folks, uh, like the eels, we're just learning about it. So I don't think it's a good idea that we go out and just but don't wreck it. Just cut yeah. everything out there and right. assume it's going to mm-hmm. grow back. And that's the other thing is is folks saying, "Don't worry, it's all going to come back." Hey, you know, yeah, it's, it's a sustainable seaweed. resource. Yeah. Like you know, you know, they said that about trees in in the United States and in North America, and now suddenly we have only two percent old growth trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trees uh, come back, but how much old growth can you get? Uh, you can't get it. Right. For, you can't get it for two hundred years, right? So when you cut right. it, unless you got two hundred years in your pocket, uh, you're not going to have old growth <laughs> trees. All right. Uh, so I want to get to that. We need to take a short break here. That's uh, Susan Hand Shetterly, author of Seaweed Chronicles: A World at the Water's Edge. We will have more in this conversation when we come back. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Now's the time to sign up for one of McHenry County's premier sustainability events. If your business offers products or services that are eco-friendly, healthy, locally produced, or energy efficient, McHenry County College wants you to join them as an exhibitor at its 11th annual Green Living Expo. The event takes place November 3rd, but registration for vendor and artist space is open now. This year's expo will be bigger than ever. The popular Artist Walk returns, featuring sustainable artwork, jewelry, and decorative items. And if your business offers eco-friendly holiday gifts, being a vendor is the perfect head start to the season. Last year's event attracted more than 1,100 visitors. Mike and I were there, and we know the expo is a fun way to interact with McHenry County's green community. Register today for the McHenry County College Green Living Expo. Call 815-479-7765 or email sustainability at mchenry.edu. Do you love trees? Do you have a great story to tell about a special tree in your life? The Morton Arboretum and Openlands have partnered to launch Tremendous Tree Stories, an online collection of stories highlighting people's connection to trees. Submit stories of the trees you cherish, remember from childhood, or that hold a special meaning for you. Browse the collection and consider sharing your own tree story by visiting tree-stories.org. Tree-stories.org. This is Peggy, and I publish Natural Awakening's Chicago Magazine. And for the past eight years, we've been helping Chicagoans to lead healthier and more sustainable lives. Pick up a copy of Natural Awakenings each month and enjoy new information about health and wellness, local foods, raising healthy kids, helping our environment, and living a more sustainable life. 
Get your free copy of Natural Awakenings in more than 1,100 locations throughout city and suburbs or visit us at nachicago.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. You're listening to Weekends on WCGO. Check out our Facebook live stream brought to you in part by our exclusive signage partner, Fast Signs of Lincolnwood. Located at 3450 West Devon Avenue, visit them on the web at fastsigns.com slash 80. Then a coal company came with the world's largest shuttle with a torch to the timber and a stripped all lane. And then they dug for the coal till the land was forsaken. And then they wrote it all down as the progress of man. Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River where paradise lay? Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late to ask Mr. Peabody's coal train is a holiday way. Unless Mr. Peabody's barge just hauled it all away. Of course, if they're hauling that away, they're hauling away seaweed. Taking it off to Canada. Uh, Oh, boy. We're going to get into that in a second. We're talking to Susan Hand Shetterly, who's the author of a wonderful book you should pick up tomorrow. You should pick it up today. Why not? Uh, (laughs) Order it online. You can go to MikeNovak.net to find more information about Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. Um, it's a, a very engaging read, and it's a... Uh, and, and what's really cool about it is the size of the book. Yeah. I'm holding it up on Facebook, oh, yeah. but it's easy to hold in your hand and read. <laughs> right. You know, after I, when they sent me the first copy of the book, because I'd worked for five years on it, I thought it would be sort of like War and Peace, a huge (laughs) book that I could hardly lift. And it's this little book that you can tuck in a backpack, and it just fits. It's a comfortable book. And so that shows you that time isn't always reflected in size. Uh, it's true, uh, but there's obviously a lot of work in there because you've mm-hmm. interviewed many, many people uh, in your neck of the wo- woods and uh, and the waters and elsewhere. Uh, uh, and, up in and, Maine, yeah, along the coast. And um, uh, let's let's start there with uh, it's kind of your backyard, which is why you started there in Maine. Um, and as I said, this is how you learned about. Uh, the seaweed by looking out your window and walking to the water's edge and and joining with people and getting into boats and and taking a look at it. So uh, tell us a little bit about what we know about harvesting seaweed in the on the coast of Maine and I guess elsewhere in the world because it's it's been done in other countries for a long time. We're just sort of getting into that right now. But tell us about what's going on in Maine. I will. What I want to tell you, first of all, about this book, and and I'll get to that very quickly, is that I wrote it for people who weren't seaweed fanatics. In Mm -hmm. other words, I wanted to bring people like myself into this world without hitting them on the head with seaweed cooking or something like that. And you'll see it's not a recipe book. Um, It's more a book about wildlife and habitat and the people working on the on the ocean and the work that they do um, is at least twofold. One is wild harvest, and that is going down um, to the shore 
and cutting what's there. The other, which is kind of new in the Gulf of Maine and pretty exciting, is aquaculture. So people, individual people who want to have a business of their own are making small farms out in our bays. And it's really rather complicated and also, I think, rather fascinating because they have to figure out what the bays have. In other words, each bay is different, what the nutrient load is in the bay and and how to grow the best seaweed from ropes that they dangle down into the water and where the, the seaweeds that they grow thrive. Um, so there's wild and there is aquaculture, um, and that is something that's mm-hmm. growing in Maine. Mm-hmm. And people in Maine want to be known for, you know, in the future for growing great seaweed, healthy, organic, not with very little pollution in our waters at all. And so everybody's being pretty careful now. But there are industrial um, entities that have come into the coast to cut a great deal of seaweed. They have um, factories that grind it up, that combine it with other things, and they use it in many different ways. And so they're still harvesting the wild seaweeds. And the question is, how long can that go on? Mm-hmm. And also how to protect through a precautionary approach, how to protect the wild shore so we can reestablish our fisheries if we ever can, and also give people jobs because people are part of our coastal culture too. It's not just codfish and seaweeds. Yeah, and and one of the commercial applications, uh, many of the commercial applications are additives and anything from toothpaste. Yeah to soaps to pick a product, uh, something called carrageenan, which is just in everything, but that comes from the seaweed, and there's such a large world market for it. Right. And now, wait, and there's there's some controversy about that. Yeah, whether it should be in organics or not. Well, and whether it's even healthy, whether it's even, didn't you write about that in the book? Yeah. I did, and since I wrote about it, the USDA has come out and said that the Organics um, uh, Association is going to have to step back on that because um, the USDA believes that anything else that is used as a substitute instead of carrageenan might be worse. And Mm. so uh, it's not finally finally resolved, but the people who have been able to label their foods organic can still use carrageenan now. It no. just happened this spring. Okay. Uh, can you explain what carrageenan is? Because uh, I, sure. had, I had no clue. <laughs> uh, sure. Sure. I know this is getting into the seaweeds a little bit. It but, is, but um, that's okay. <laughs> carrageenan. Maybe people have eaten this um, knowingly because it's Irish moss. That's Mm -hmm. what we call it on this coast. And what it is is a very pretty seaweed that turns white when it's dried. And people used to make puddings out of it. My mother would make that. My sister and I liked collecting it and uh, bringing it to her. You you tell a story about it in the book. 
do. I do. Also, um, it it is a seaweed that it was is eaten on the still on the coast of Ireland. And during the famine, the people who uh, survived the famine, many of them went were coastal people who went down to the shore and could uh, depend on the seaweeds for food when they were starving. So uh, carrageenan has a has a, hit, a long history in the Atlantic, and um, the Irish certainly are very grateful for it. <laughs> so uh, getting back to that area, uh, there's a... It's it, obviously people need to read the book if they want to understand everything that's going on and all the different entities that are involved and and how complicated it is. I mean, you were talking about some of the corporate interests. One is uh, Acadian Sea Plants, which is the right. lar- the largest harvester of seaweed in the world, right? Of commercial seaweed, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. yeah, and yeah, they're they're amazing. Well, yeah. they are amazing, but part of the issue is. Do does Acadia have Acadian have the right to come in to the coast of Maine and cut seaweed and take it and back out of the country and wherever and process it and make money off of it? Uh, does it have to answer to the landowner who owns the seaweed? Is it the landowner? Is it is it the state? Is it uh, some other entity? Uh, how is that determined? And this is all going on right now with with small companies, large companies like Acadian. Um, uh, you have Nature Conservancy. You have uh, uh, the uh, the the state uh, is involved in it as well. And there's jurisdictions to be settled here. And is this going to be done in an orderly way, Susan? Right. Well. <laughs> The thing is, everybody has a lot of stake at stake here, and so it's not a gentle, smiley process that's going on here. We're still waiting for um, the state of Maine, um, the uh, uh, judges in the court, uh, to decide whether or not seaweed. Hang in here a minute. Is the owned by the owner? of the land above the tide, or whether people are allowed to move into the intertidal and harvest seaweed, Mm -hmm. anybody, whether it is owned by the general public. And so we don't know yet. Um, It's been cut uh, moderately for maybe the last 30 or 40 years, but all of a sudden, it's a big deal now. And so it's in the courts. Yeah, and um, the outcome should should be known perhaps in the late fall, but that's a guess. And and if yeah. we understand the court case properly, some of it goes back to old old laws in Maine, colonial laws. Absolutely. And, and the definition uh, of is it a plant or when, an animal? Right. When when th- those laws were made when Maine was a part of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, nothing was simple. And when I started writing this book, I thought, you know, I don't want people to drown in all these facts. So I'm going to tell these these story these stories as stories with 
people in them and mm-hmm. animals in them, you know, and try to educate myself as I educate the reader, too, to make um, all this complicated information fun to read and challenging and interesting because we do have an opportunity to teach ourselves how to do things better than we've done before. And if we don't get it right, you know, this could be a model of how to do other things uh, to make other policies for wildlife issues. We, we're, there's so much we have to do. Yeah. And I learned from these people who were teaching me how much they loved the shore and the work they were doing. And you, I hope you can see that in the book because um, I felt it deeply. You know, I was very moved by the people and their passion for what they do. All right. Give us your website very quickly. Oh, it's a wonderful book. Thank you so much. Angelic Organics Learning Center celebrates its 11th annual Harvest Moon Dinner on September 13th, with proceeds supporting the center's work to bring urban and rural people together to build our local food systems. Feast on a freshly harvested gourmet meal at Theater on the Lake that's designed by executive chef Cletus Friedman. Enjoy delicious delights from Bang Bang Pie and Biscuits, craft cocktails, live music by guitarist Mark Dvorak, photo ops with adorable farm animals, a live auction, a farm store, and more. Guests can also attend a VIP discussion moderated by Monica Eng of WBEZ with Jack Gilbert of the University of Chicago and Angelic Organics Association President Tom Spaulding. Dinner ingredients will be served at their peak freshness from sustainable sources. Join Mike, me, and a bunch of folks who love good local food at Theater on the Lake on September 13th. For tickets and information, go to learngrowconnect.org slash harvestmoon. If you're a landscaper, educator, administrator, or even a homeowner who's figured out that a couple of junipers and a lawn ain't sustainable, the 2018 Impact Conference is for you. Presented by the Illinois Landscape Contractors Association, this day-long event looks at how plant communities, soil, natural lawn care, stormwater management, and designing for habitat are long overdue parts of smart landscaping. Impact is October 16th at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Go to ilca.net slash impactconference. This is Peggy, and I publish Natural Awakening Chicago Magazine. And for the past eight years, we've been helping Chicagoans to lead healthier and more sustainable lives. Pick up a copy of Natural Awakenings each month and enjoy new information about health and wellness, local foods, raising healthy kids, helping our environment, and living a more sustainable life. Get your free copy of Natural Awakenings in more than 1,100 locations throughout city and suburbs, or visit us at nachicago.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. This is your talk. And this place is really something else, huh? Only on 1590 WCGO, Evanston, Chicago. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Here we are, coming to uh, the end of summer. Unbelievable. How does that happen? I don't know. I was out today. Uh, however, the good news is 
uh, harvesting tomatoes today. Um, got some of my Cherokee purples. Now I have a little, there's some cracks in them. Um, uh, fortunately, I didn't get any blossom end rot, but uh, you can tell the cracks because what mm-hmm. happens is uh, when you have uh, lower times of water and then uh, more water, you have less water and more water, and then the more water causes the tomato to expand quickly and then it cracks. But uh, other than that, they they seem beautiful and they ripe. They look great. And yeah. ready you brought to go. some into the studio yep, today. Yep, and Kathleen's going to get one of those uh, after the show today, so that's good. Um and uh, the other thing that's going on and, and something that uh, you called my attention is uh, uh, the Illinois, oh boy, I always, I, I can never remember the name, the Home Yard and Garden Pest Newsletter um, came out with information on aerating lawns because, folks, and I know that there are those of you who love your lawns, you know my, you know my motto on lawns, when in doubt, rip it out. Um, That's mine too. Get but, rid of it. But that said, if you're going to grow a lawn, and I'm cool with it, uh, as long as you're not using weed and feed. Now, I'm, I'm just going to tell you right there, I I have no use for weed and feed because uh, it's uh, synthetic fertility and poison. That's why, that's, <laughs> that's why they call it weed and feed because nobody would buy it if they called it syn- synthetic fertility and poison. Um, so my my feeling is if you, if you're going down the lawn trail, be gentle. All right, be gentle, and that means that uh, water it correctly, mow it correctly, grow it correctly, seed it correctly, do all that stuff. And if you're in the upper part of the country, uh, the uh, whether it's the east or the Midwest or the Great Plains uh, up in the in the uh, uh, the northern climes, uh, you're, and you love your cool season grasses, uh, then this is the time to uh, work on your lawn. You get it going in the fall, and then it gives them time to establish in the cooler weather, and then they are able to overwinter and then hit the ground running in the spring. And one of the things that you can do to help things out, if you've got compacted soil, Obviously, you want the the roots to go down as deeply as possible. You can uh, core aerate, and uh, uh, the uh, Illinois Extension Home Yard and Garden Pest. Uh, we should. I tell you what, we should put a uh, link to this on the Facebook page because okay. if I just talk about it, nobody will know where to find it. Uh, I, I mean, you go can get that link up. Uh, and and if you're listening and you want to write this down, you can go to. H-Y-G, as in Home Yard Garden, hyg.ipm.illinois.edu. And that takes you to their newsletter. And you should, you should subscribe to it. It's, it's great stuff. I, and, I, and, and I suspect that most extension outfits across the, the country have these kinds of newsletters that they send out. And they're very valuable. You get great information um, from them. And... Um, this one is, uh, as I said, about uh, there's an article here about core aeration. Um, they state that aerating the soil is a process of creating openings in the lawn to help water infiltration, thatch removal, nutrient absorption, and air movement into the root zone. It will also alleviate compaction and the issues that follow. It allows the, gro- the roots to grow deeper, allowing the lawn to become thicker as well as more drought tolerant. 
And that's a good thing, too. Different types of aeration, core aeration, uh, which uses a hollow tine to remove cores of soil and deposit them on the surface of the lawn. Uh, they talk about spiking, uses solid spikes to create holes, splitting the thatch and cutting slits into the soil. Slicing uses rotating blades to cut narrow slits into the soil. It's the most, uh, core aeration, however, they say, is the most effective and the most visible of the three methods. It physically removes the soil and creates channels for water, air, and nutrients to enter back into the soil. The cores that are left on top are typically watered back in and add nutrients once decomposed. Uh, the other two methods are less noticeable on the lawns. Uh, however, they're not as effective. And folks, if you're going to wear golf spikes out there, that ain't going to work. <laughs> you're not going to you're not going to core aerate your lawn. Didn't Ronco make those? Uh, uh, who? What? Remember those as seen on TV? I get get the get the spikes on your oh, shoes to core really? aerate your lawn. No, really? Boy, long time I, ago. Yeah. Well, some people probably fell for that too. Um, but if you've ever uh, tried to core aerate your lawn, and I have, I've used those machines, folks. Um, know what you're doing. It would be a good thing because uh, they're huge honking machines, I got to tell you. I think there are smaller ones you can do, uh, but it's really hard work uh, if, you, if you're not using one of those big machines. And I rented one once from the, uh, from the Home Depot and uh, went out with some buddies. And Actually, I've used it twice, once with a buddy and then once with a professional, who, who, and uh, both times. I mean, they're, they're huge. They'll drag you along like you don't exist. Um, so make sure you know what you're doing so you don't bump into cars. Mm-hmm. The, your neighbor's parked in the driveway because that sucker will just keep going and you'll go right into that car. Uh, but it's it's a really good way to uh, to get rid of the compaction in your soil and set yourself up for uh, good seeding. Uh, one of the things that people do is they'll core aerate and then they'll spread some compost and then the compost goes into the holes that are left. Mm-hmm. And then the cores that are on top, they break down eventually. And within a week, you're not even going to rem- know that you... You'd been core aerating it. It goes that quickly. Um, and then we're uh, getting to the end of August here, and I'm watching the weather, and by midweek, it's supposed to change in our neck of the woods here, get cooler. So my feeling is if I were going to be redoing my lawn, I would be doing it today. Hmm. I'd be like, get that seed out and, and get it uh, watered so that it germinates within the week, and then it's those cool weather uh, temps are going to hit, and that's the those are the perfect conditions uh, for getting your your lawn started. Um, and then uh, you know, the, the, obviously, the thing about germination, you have to keep it watered every day. That's why it's good. Maybe if you can put some straw down or something mm-hmm. on top to to hold in the moisture. Um, and it's the one time when you're watering that uh, you're not watering deeply that you can water on top because you just just want to keep the seed wet. So if it's really hot and dry, you got to go out there sometimes twice a day just to keep it there, just to keep the moisture there. Um, and uh, then once it germinates, uh, uh, it's it's a lot easier to keep going, but you still have to keep it moist so that uh, the seed uh, doesn't dry out. But once the cooler temperatures hit, then you're, you're kind of on your way, and it looks like that's going to happen later this week. Uh, I'm, our meteorologist, Rick DeMaio, will be telling about this later in the show. So... Uh, 
this is the time, you know, let's get the starting pistol and go bang and let's get those uh, lawns going if you want to, you know, instead of the spring. Yes. And how how late into the season <laughs> for those of us who procrastinate? Uh, uh, good question. You know, you know, the, the thing about weather is you don't know how long it's going to last. Some years you have warm weather into December mm-hmm. and others you get in mid-October and you're done. So my feel the safe zone, they usually say about six weeks from about mid-August to about the end of September okay. is really the safe time to reseed your lawn if uh, you want to do that. At least that's what I, you know, and, and people cheat. Everybody's cheating, you know. You can cheat with lawns, you, you know. Let's see what happens and see if it germinates and uh, and what could uh, go wrong. And you well, you've wasted a little seed if if yeah. if it doesn't happen. I mean, everybody's planting trees. It's, I've planted trees in December. Uh, I, it doesn't tell you to do that in the books, folks. But sometimes, if it's still sitting out yeah. there, you try Each to get away different. with it. All right, it's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Molecki. We've got more coming up, so stick around. Captain's log, stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Wolf, status report. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, be more specific. Asparagus officinalis, or killer asparagus, was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work. Of course. Attack of the Killer Asparagus is required reading at Starfleet Academy. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Gwynok of Ninglador. Captain, shields are failing. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. Captain, it seems to be available online at aroundtheblockpress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm, it appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick every gardener, taking all our self-delusions, mishaps, and confusions and playing them for big laughs. That's not very helpful, Mr. Data. No, it is, however, highly accurate. Welcome to the second hour of the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Our second hour guests are... Hanging out in the lobby, and we'll be in here. We got their cameras all set up. Um, We're good. And uh, are are we more or less uh, set on Facebook here? We are live on Facebook. Oh, that's good. So go to the Mike Novak Show if you want to watch us on Facebook Uh, right now. And if you really don't want to see us, that's a good thing too. You can just listen on the radio, uh, the uh, the old school way. Um, I uh, we got a, a a media advisory from a friend of the show who was on last year um and this uh was part we found out about them through uh, through a couple of ways one is uh the chicago excellence in gardening awards which peggy and i continue to work on and by the way those are being judged even as we speak They're, the judging is just about wrapped up and we're going to be making determinations uh who wins gardening awards in the city of chicago very shortly um and one of the ones that won last year was something called Anthony's Garden at Gale mm-hmm. uh, at uh, Chicago Public School, Gale Math and Science Academy on the north side. 
Um, and then um, we had one of the folks associated with that, Tanya Andrina uh, from Adjust Harvest. Uh, they were working with that school. And and we had Augie Emua uh, <laughs> on the program, who is the principal there. We got to get them back yeah. here. Uh, Need to, to get be- them. Because they were really cool, and I really enjoyed our conversation um, uh, teaching kids how to garden and, and the importance of, um, harvesting your own food and that sort of thing. And they, uh, they had applied for this grant and gotten a, a, a huge, huge sum of money, $120,000, which, uh, they got through the 49th ward participating budget cycle and uh, estimated $75,000 from a learning garden grant through Big Green, formerly the Kitchen Community. Um, remember, we've had the Kitchen Community on the show a couple of times. And they're having the official opening ceremony of this new garden up at uh, Gale Math and Science Academy. They're having it this Tuesday uh, from 3 to 5, and I'm hoping to get over there uh, I don't know if you've got the opportunity to go there, but I, I'm going to try to be there. Um, now, I don't know that it's open to the public. It's kind of out there in the public, yeah. so I don't know that you but it's you, just, could, you could keep the public from being but there. But it's just kind of cool, though, that they're doing all this there and and, and, and what they've gone through to, to open these new gardens. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's, it's great to see that uh, these programs that combine – urban gardening with education um with a sense of local food uh this is this is uh, all very very good so um i'm hoping that uh i can get over there on tuesday um and and see what's going on and how it's transformed because i i was the judge for the mm-hmm. or for that garden last year and uh uh, and took some photos, yeah. and it, and I'm sure it doesn't look anything like it did last year. <laughs> it's Just, really amazing what a lot of the schools are able to do with their community and school gardens. Yeah, and and as I mentioned before, we're wrapping up the. Uh, it's a long process, folks, and I don't know that uh, any of you listening uh, actually entered your gardens in the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards, but uh, we we had nearly a hundred gardens that we were looking at, and a bunch of judges going out, and it's. It's really complicated because you got to get out there. You got to assign them. They've got to figure out the the criteria. Well, we give them the criteria, and then they judge them and send in photos. And now we have to look through all of that and then make a determination. And then there will be an award ceremony yeah. on the thirteenth of October. And um, one of the cool things, though, in the whole judging process, though, is just talking to everybody, talking to each gardener, and hearing their story, and yeah. and how they came to build a garden and select plants, and what was their in their grandmother's garden, and what's their passions, and it's just it's really fun to see how people are developing their gardens based on their history, their culture, their likes, or in some cases just stumbling into it. And you're right. I I think the best part is talking to the people because. A lot of these folks, they just want somebody to come and see their garden. They just want somebody to take a look at it and say, yeah, that's really cool. And they are. And they're wonderful stories. Everybody's got a wonderful mm-hmm. story. But I'll tell you, our judges have come back to us and said, oh, my God, <laughs> I have seen the most amazing gardens. And uh, it's it's nice to know that that's going on in the city of Chicago. And uh, that's why we're here. We need to recognize those people and all the hard work they put in their communities and and their planet. 
their area. Uh, and uh, so that's going to be coming up in uh, October, and uh, you'll be hearing more about that uh, right here on the Mike Novak Show with uh, Peggy Malecki. What else have we got? 60? We got 60, so we're getting ready for fish. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how the, the, the theme of the show ended up being fish today. It, it, we certainly didn't do that on purpose. It's something I wrote on the blog. I just said, uh, you know, sometimes the scheduling turns out that way, but that's okay. That's okay with me because uh, what we have coming up next is, is very, very cool. And, again, it involves schools. And involves youth, and involves, and it's all over the whole country, and all over the city of Chicago, and uh, and, and suburbs, and teaching kids to understand how nature works, and you know, perhaps perhaps actually get their hands on it, and not go ew, that's icky, as an icky ew. icky. Uh, no, you teach them, it's you, you get cool. them to do it once, and they figure it yep. out. All right, coming up next. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki and Trout in the Classroom. One of McHenry County's premier sustainability events is coming up, and now's the time to sign up. If your business offers products or services that are eco-friendly, healthy, locally produced, or energy efficient, McHenry County College wants you to join them as an exhibitor at its 11th annual Green Living Expo. The event takes place in November, but registration for vendor and artist space is now open. This year's expo will be bigger than ever. The popular Artist Walk returns, featuring sustainable artwork, jewelry, and decorative items. And if your business offers eco-friendly holiday gifts, being a vendor is the perfect head start to the season. Last year's event attracted more than 1,100 visitors. Peggy and I were there, and I bowled pumpkins for compost. It's a fun way to interact with the green community. Register today for the McHenry County College Green Living Expo. Call 815-479-7765 or email sustainability at mchenry.edu. From boat to doorstep, you can have the best in premium and sustainable Alaskan seafood right here in the Midwest. Sitka Salmon Shares is an Alaskan community-supported fishery, or CSF, comprised of small boat family fishermen from southeast Alaska. They're supported by 4,000 CSF members, and you can be one, too. Sign up at SitkaSalmonShares.com to receive fresh Alaska salmon, whitefish, and more in shares ranging from three to nine months. Use promo code MikeNovak18 for $25 off. Go to SitkaSalmonShares.com. This is tree keeper number 417, hydrated, loppers sharpened, and reporting that Openlands has tree keeper summer and fall courses in 2018. Tree keepers are trained volunteers who advocate and care for nature's most majestic plants, trees, around the Chicago area. Trust me, you'll be glad you took the course. The summer course is Tuesdays and Thursdays in Arlington Heights. The fall course is Sundays and Thursdays at Wells Park in Chicago. To learn more, visit openlands.org slash treekeepers. You're listening to Weekends on WCGO. Check out our Facebook live stream brought to you in part by our exclusive signage partner, Fast Signs of Lincolnwood. Located at 3450 West Devon Avenue, visit them on the web at fastsigns.com slash 80. Tune in to Chicago History and Automotive Heaven Sundays at 12 noon with Richie Z right here on WCGO AM 1590. Hey, 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 oh, I have the hate right. Hey, hey. 
Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki and continuing our fish capades today. Fish capades. Uh, <laughs> we bring in uh, Marvin. All right, now I got to make sure I know how to pronounce your last name correctly. Marvin, what's Strauk? Strauk. Strauk. Okay, that's kind of what we thought. Uh, Marvin Strauk. Uh, who's a member of the Oak Brook chapter of Trout Unlimited and uh, an avid fisherman. In fact, we should have had Mike Jackson do the intro here. I don't know if you ever listened to Mike Jackson's show. Uh, We've gotten on the way in. Uh, We've gotten on the fishing train. Oh, so there you go. We're on the fishing train. (laughs) Uh, And uh, uh, Marvin is also coordinator Classroom coordinator for, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Trout in the Classroom Coordinator for Illinois and the Illinois Council of Trout Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, nice with, to be here. with him is Joe Lentino, who's a teacher in the Chicago Public School uh, uh, System. And he's at Burroughs Elementary and been a trout in the classroom teacher for the last five years. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, and we need Joe's mic, too, let's please. Let's make sure we got Joe's. And Joe's got a really cool Great Lakes T-shirt on. I wore it just for this occasion. Oh, I like I like that. Uh, can I see that? Let's see. Where do I get one of those? Uh, uh, one of my a teacher friends actually brought it to me um, from her vacation in Harbor Country. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, we're gonna have to back off uh, his mic just a little bit there. Uh, <laughs> the mic wasn't on, and then and now it's on. All right. Uh, we'll get it all together. Okay, now we're going to start all over because this is not actually live. This is uh, – oh, wait a second. Yes, it is. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> that's Joe over there. Yeah, that's uh, – so Marvin and Joe are in the studio here. And um, all right, it, tell us I, – I mean uh, I found out about this uh, because of a mutual friend of ours, uh, Chris Johnson, mm-hmm. who wrote about this. And then we ran into him um, at an event – at um uh what's the the woods we were at uh earlier uh okay ah, come yeah on. you had to mention that yeah i know because the, so, ma- the one on cicero right labar woods labar woods there was a, a oh, now event. my mic's kind of along the north branch right? uh yeah. right yeah. exactly yeah. yeah and uh and chris was there and he said hey hey you guys got to talk about this yeah. interesting thing and i said oh send me some information and he did and I thought, well, you know what? Why not? This is this sounds cool. Now, it just happens to be on a show where we were talking about seaweed earlier. I don't know if you heard the, uh, any of that discussion. Uh, but this is different because now we're talking freshwater. We're talking we're, freshwater. Uh, yes. Freshwater, and we're talking trout, and we're talking mm-hmm. um, getting kids uh, hands-on with science. A which, lot of science in it. Absolutely. Uh, Conservation yeah, and know, restoration. Mm-hmm. That is uh, the, the, the part we love best is is when there's science involved. And the kids, especially when you can get them uh, digging in the dirt or handling <laughs> insects or handling fish or handling uh, something that they're walking in a stream. Normal. Uh, well, see, it's not even just walking in a stream because that's the easy part. But if you ask them to handle uh, uh, something that's slimy or moving, um, they're they're going to freak out. Maybe you know. And and and, and you got to tell me, Joe, because you're the teacher. All right, because I have this image in my head that there's half the kids go, oh, man, that's awesome. That's cool. And the other half just, ah. So Even the other half that is pretty scared of them at first, after the first five minutes, they get uh, really excited about it, too. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that when you get a kid to handle something, all right, one of the things that the Illinois Master Gardeners do 
um, and the Cook County Master Gardeners, they go to fairs and they have these uh, the, what they call the insect petting zoo. And they have these uh, Madagascar hissing cockroaches and they have these uh, ama- centipedes. The millipedes that are the size of – of of a truck and uh <laughs> and they handle them and I've and I've and tarantulas and if all you gotta do is handle them once or twice and you realize, hey, this is not gonna hurt me. It's you have to just get an animal. It's exactly you just gotta get past the the ick factor. The but well and, and you know and, and the problem with the ick factor is uh stereotypes mm-hmm. that we impose because we're ignorant. We we t- we let the ignorance run rampant, and we don't fight it hard enough. Is is kind of what I say. What do you think, Joe, as a science teacher? You know, I think the um, uh, one of uh, the kids come in, and when the bugs are there, they don't often, you know, really realize you know what's unique about them. And it seems that they're you know some of them are sort of big and scary looking, but once you take a closer look, um, a lot of them are really pretty majestic, and uh, you know certainly mm-hmm. have delicate features that. Um, you know, the kids eventually think are really quite pretty and impressive. So, um, you know, when the bugs do come to the school, even students who, you know, don't want to participate necessarily realize, you know, um, how special they really are and that they're not, they're not bugs, they're really animals. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at trout, where are the bugs coming in? They are part of the uh, trout food web. Mm-hmm. So, you know, trout will make, I don't know, about 90% of their diet is insects, I right. would say. So they, um, you know, we we have them. We have the bugs come, so the students can learn about the food web. Um, but I think it's more interesting also to think of uh, how the insects need the water, and mm-hmm. and the the science of the water is as interesting as the fish or the insects. Uh, okay, tell me a little bit about that. The trout have to have uh, clean, cold, and well oxygenated water, and so when we're maintaining the tank uh, throughout the year. You know, the first thing we always check is uh, the temperature, and we check the pH, um, and we and we check how much oxygen it is in it all the time. And then we, you know, we talk a lot about. So you're teaching kids how to measure that, so they're they're yeah. getting real practical information and, yeah. and experience on measuring. I mean, I wouldn't know how to measure oxygen in the water. We use a um, <laughs> we use some pretty cool technology called um, uh, Vernier LabQuest, and it mm-hmm. has what's called a dissolved oxygen sensor. Mm-hmm. So every day that the the students you know plug this dissolved oxygen sensor into the computer and they uh, let it sit in the trout tank for you know a moment or so, and then they have a um, a unit of measurement and they and they and I ask them to predict every day you know what should the oxygen be if it's going to be good and they say well it should be about you know, ten parts per million and they like to see that it is <laughs> and and you looking at these kids as a teacher how what's your reaction to that you know I I'm glad that they're able to, you know, collect that sort of data um, as middle school kids because I, I never got to, I didn't think anything about dissolved oxygen until I was mm-hmm. in college. And then, um, but they, they work with it, you know, frequently. They, you know, they test the water every day and then we do different experiments with it. And it's just nice that they have some habitual uh, experience to see, you know, I know that it should be this and if it's not that, the fish are going to suffer. And, and they do, you know, when the, when the oxygen level, you know, decreases. Uh, you know, some of the fish, you know, suffer quite a bit. And so the kids as, will start as, to see it. As in, as in belly up yes. kind of thing? Is that, is that what you're it saying? Happens. Yeah. It happens. Uh-huh. We are, we're 10 years into the program in Illinois, and um, there have been a few instances where schools have lost some or all of their trout. Yikes. Uh, they are 
again, what we're trying to bring to schools is this understanding of the fragility of a cold water environment, mm -hmm. how uh, under stress it is in, you know, in the climate that's changing now that we're seeing in the Midwest. And they see that in their trout tank. Uh, the uh, number one problem that we will have is if a chiller for a tank goes out. Uh, water temperature rises. Right. The trout can't survive above 72 degrees. Oh, my goodness. So okay. right at the point where that we think water is comfortable to step into is when it's yeah. too warm well, for trout. Mm -hmm. so. That's one of the things, actually, uh, Susan Hanshetterly writes about constantly in her book is how climate change is affecting the water temperatures in the uh, the Gulf of Maine. Um and we think of it being ridiculously frigid, but you go up a couple of degrees and those seaweed, seaweed species were, are going to migrate northward because they can't exist there. And, and they want very cold water. And the other thing she points out is that cold water holds a lot more nutrients than warm water right. does. And that seems counterintuitive to me. Joe, uh, can you give me a little science on that? Well, the nutrient uh, content, I guess, um, and how that relates to temperature, I well, not quite as familiar with. Uh, I haven't... Uh, I didn't mean to sandbag you there, dude. That's <laughs> all right. I mean, I could describe the relationship between temperature and oxygen pretty well, but okay. a lot of times I think that, um, you know, I think we would think that warmer water would probably uh, dissolve more nutrients. Yes. I think that... that but for I'm, some reason, the, the cooler water is more rich in, in uh, richer in nutrients. Well, that would be great because, you know, if it was cold, then, you know, the nutrient-rich water would hold more... Uh, more more plant life, and that would be yeah. important to everything. Yeah. All well. right. Well, well, we got to back up a little bit here because we kind of got ahead of ourselves. I want Marvin to tell us a little bit about Trout Unlimited and how this all came about. It's a, a very interesting program. Then I have some more specific issues about uh, the classroom. So certainly, go ahead. Well, Trout Unlimited is the the nation's largest cold water conservation organization. We're about three hundred thousand members. Um. I forget the number of local chapters, but pretty much every state in the union. And uh, as a as an organization, our mission is to preserve, to protect, to restore, conserve the cold water fisheries of North America and and their watersheds. So that's our focus. Our focus is either uh, large scale national issues confronting cold water environments or for the most part, very local grassroots efforts, uh, working on specific cold water streams to uh, preserve habitat for fish. Uh, completely independently of Trout Unlimited, uh, Trout in the Classroom formed about 30 years ago in California with some uh, just individual teachers uh, requesting fish to raise in their classrooms. Uh, a few years later, it jumped completely across the, the country to, to New York, where in New York City, a group of teachers got together uh, very rapidly. It grew to about 100 schools, raising their fish and releasing mm -hmm. them up in the Catskills. Uh, and at that point, Trout Unlimited discovered Trout in the Classroom and stepped up to start to provide uh, some support. Uh, now, pretty much across the country, states are... Uh, trying to aid in trout in the classroom programs. In Illinois, we have four chapters. All four of the chapters participate. Uh, we each sponsor uh, individual schools. And when I say sponsor, uh, in many cases, we're purchasing the equipment to start the program. 
uh, which would be a 55-gallon tank, a filter, a chiller, and a chiller to keep the water temperature at about 50 to 55 degrees mm -hmm. all year long. Um, and, and I'm sorry if you mentioned it. Uh, how many schools involved in Right. Uh, last year we had 26. This year we are expanding to 29 schools. Hmm. In uh, Illinois. In Illinois. And it, I, I do have to say Illinois uh, is, uh, I'll say it's problematic. Not, not uh, Nothing, the state of Illinois, just because of our geography, because of uh, our geomorphology, I guess you'd say. Um, there are very few cold water streams remaining in, in Illinois. It's just because of our geography. Yeah, uh, we have to travel two hours from Burroughs Elementary almost out to near Rockford, Illinois, for the trout release. Cause that's the closest cold water stream. Oh. And it's not I'm necessarily... Actually, I tell you the truth. I'm actually kind of surprised that there are any in Illinois, period. That's right. Well, uh, the ones that we have are right along the Wisconsin border, mm -hmm. uh, uh, either up in the northwest corner of the state or... Uh, feeding into the Rock River uh, near Rockford. And there's the small ravine program. And there's the ravine program, yes. Highland Park, There's yeah. the ravine program uh, because, again, as Chicago, uh, first off, there were very, historically, there were very few creeks or rivers flowing into Lake Michigan in the Chicago area. Uh, most of the, you know, most of the rivers were flowing west and south into the, to the Mississippi, ultimately. But, um, uh, the let's say the cold water is either Lake Michigan or the ravines or those couple of streams uh, that I already mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so uh, trying to develop the program in Illinois, it becomes problematic because the schools can't be too far away from that release point. Sure. So the focus ends up being in the Chicago metro area primarily. It leads me to a question, though, about Trout Unlimited in Illinois. It seems that Illinois is marginal in terms of cold water and, and, and trout. How can you have a... a uh, other than the Great Lake, you know, we have a great big uh, Great Lake. Uh, we have the Great Lakes right at our doorstep. Right. So there are those issues. But as far as cold water streams, you're absolutely right. However, what we do have are a lot of people. We have a lot of people who actively pursue uh, uh, trout fishing or uh, are just interested in cold water environments. Might, might head up to Wisconsin or over Wisconsin, to Michigan. to Michigan, Minnesota. to Iowa, to Minnesota, um, uh, may go west to Montana, may mm -hmm. go to the Pacific Northwest, may go to Alaska, yeah. uh, and they have become uh, concerned about these issues. And so those are our members. Uh, and so typically... Uh, all of our chapters participate in conservation programs. Those are all grassroots efforts in uh, Michigan, the Coldwater River, uh, the the Duwajiak River, uh, uh, the Driftless Area of Wisconsin, the, all of those small mm -hmm. spring creeks in southwestern Wisconsin. Uh, that's where we actively are doing our stream project. We have like uh, 40 seconds left. Just give me a, a quick state of trout in the midwest challenged uh, Real, really challenged. challenged yeah well the native trout to the midwest is the brook trout and uh unfortunately the brook trout uh does not survive in illinois anymore oh my goodness wow so, so where do you find it uh in wisconsin in michigan right. in minnesota
And the goal is to bring it back or not worry about that? Uh, the goal is to preserve it where it is now. Where it is now yes. and then see what happens. Yes. Eh? Exactly. Okay. Uh, in the studio, we have Marvin Strauch and Joe Lentino. We're talking trout in the classroom. We'll be back. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Time to kill the vampires and phantoms. No garlic or wooden steaks necessary. In a Green Diva Minute, you'll learn more and be on your way to living a deeper shade of green. Energy generation or power plants are one of the largest sources of pollution contributing to climate change. 5 to 20% of our home electric bill comes from vampire or phantom energy use. Most of our electronics remain on standby even if they're off. Anything that has a little light on somewhere, like a charger, is still sucking up energy. Cable boxes are among the worst offenders. There are some smart strips that help by allowing you to turn things on and off on a timer. The U.S. Department of Energy offers some tools to help you get to know more about your energy use. I'm Green Diva Meg. Find more useful Green Diva podcasts, videos, and of course, lots of low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green at thegreendivas.com. Whether it's March, July, September, or December, if you're a gardener, any time of year is perfect for a subscription to Chicagoland Gardening Magazine. It's the garden magazine for our region and one of the best gardening magazines in the country. Every issue features spectacular photos, articles by noted horticultural authorities, nursery owners, state extension agents, master gardeners, and more. There are columns like Ask the Garden Pros, Regional Reports, What to Do in the Garden, and even my column on the inside back page of every issue. I make up stuff and they pay me for it. Go figure. Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state gardening magazines. On newsstands everywhere. But go to chicagolandgardening.com and get a subscription. If you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to statebystategardening.com. Or call 888-265-3600. 888-265-3600. This is your talk. We're going to be here for a long time. Only on 1590 WCGO. Evanston, Chicago. I've been thinking the last couple of weeks that I had to play The Dog Days dog Are days. Over because they're finally going to be over as of, uh, no, I guess, a few days. No. Yeah, and then we get into the serious stuff again. Uh, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're talking about trout in the classroom on the show with a couple of our guests in studio. Joe Lentino, who's a Chicago public school teacher, and Marvin Strauch from uh, the Oak Brook chapter of Trout Unlimited. Let's... We we talked about trout and and sponsoring this. Now, exactly how does this work when you start up trout in a classroom? I mean, what's just walk us through exactly how that happens? Who wants to start it? it? I can do this. Okay, it follows it follows the school year. Uh, first off, uh, we need to mention that the Illinois Department of Natural Resources is a huge partner in this program because of course they're providing us the fish eggs mm-hmm. they're providing us the fish food and they're permitting the program and this in deciding where these fish can be released so uh starting at the beginning of the calendar year 
Uh, a trot in the classroom tank setup is approximately twelve to fourteen hundred dollars of equipment. It's again a large chiller. It's a filter, the uh, the required pumps, and a fifty-five gallon tank. It's an upfront expense, uh, but a one-time expense really. Uh, once the equipment's up, there's very little maintenance involved. Uh, Trot Unlimited steps in again as a potential grantor for schools looking to do the program. We do have an annual pot of money that we award grants out to schools mm-hmm. applying. So at the beginning of the school year, teachers set up their tank, uh, fill a tank with water, make sure that everything is functioning, not leaking uh, by and how do you fill it up? With what? Uh, you get a five-gallon bucket and a few eager uh, students who need <laughs> community service hours. Chicago uh, tap water. Yeah, with Chicago uh, oh, tap water. Okay, do you let it gas off? Is that important? Yes. Yes. Yeah, do you have I to dechlorinate it? Yeah. yeah. How long do you let it gas off? Uh, it sits without fish eggs in it for about two weeks. Hmm. Do you find, All right. This is a question that I've uh, asked before, and... Uh, I fill up my milk jugs, empty milk jugs at home with tap water, and then I let it sit. And often they'll sit for weeks. But do you know how long it takes before enough chlorine is released so that it's not toxic? About 24 hours. That's what I've always heard, is that it takes about 24 hours and that most of that. What else is in there that is going to cause an issue? Uh, Chloramine. Yeah, chloramine, which we need to talk about in the show. I've had somebody, and I'm trying to remember who was telling me the chloramine issue. There's, oh, there's yeah. it's a huge issue. Uh, oh, I know. It's it, our friend it, it of the It was Midwest. the pond guys. Right. Uh, Bob Passavoy from the Midwest Pond and Koi Society says, I got to get him on and talk about chloramine because he could tell stories for, for weeks about chloramine. And, and, and what a lot of folks don't understand is that each municipality tweaks its water differently. Uh, so that you, it's not you're not getting the same thing from from city to city, and you need to, or or maybe certain suburbs work together. But uh, don't just assume if you go one place, you're getting exactly the same water that you get someplace else. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, even in the city, you know, if it varies from building to building. Because I'm in a school that's approximately 120 years old, and I do sometimes wonder if the you know tap water is. You know. And you wonder how much lead is in it as mm-hmm. well, don't you? I do. But yeah. we tested negative for lead at our school. So. Hey! Yep. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, you fill the tanks with Fills, water. Fill a tank with water. Pre-treat, uh, pre-treat the tank with a bacteria that will be prepared to break down uh, fish waste mm-hmm. once the fish are uh, eating. And then mid-November... The Department of Natural Resources contacts us as they receive um, fertilized rainbow trout or brown trout eggs. Uh, Schools select whether they want to raise rainbow trout for release into Lake Michigan, those would be steelhead, or brown trout for release into a creek. And uh, the eggs arrive mid-November. Each school receives approximately 150 eggs. They hatch within... Within a week. Days, you know, Mm -hmm. within uh, days or a week uh, and are kept in a little nursery basket uh, sitting uh, in the tank. So the students can uh, observe the fish as they form from the egg to the alevin. About Christmas break time are when those uh, little alevin begin to start to move around 
by the time Christmas break is done, uh, when the new year begins, uh, they have absorbed their egg sac and are ready to begin feeding. During yeah. during that whole time, too, the tank is completely covered, um, you know, with a foam board or cardboard to keep the light out, um, because it seems that the uh, on all sides on all sides, yes. yeah, the light okay. it seems that the light could be uh, very damaging to the well, fertilized the, eggs. I would imagine so that keep them the, in the dark. normally they're under the water. Under we're mimicking we're yeah. mimicking a stream. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're mimicking a stream. So fish lay their eggs on a stream bottom, and again, mm-hmm. uh, brown trout, brook trout spawn in the fall. So it's in the darkest time of the year, if you think about it. So we're mimicking that in our little tanks. When do these uh, critters become something that's recognizable as, say, a minnow? Um, I would say by early end January. Of January. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So about that time, then that must—that's when it gets really exciting, right? Right. That, it's, it's the whole the whole thing is really exciting because when when they have the eggs, the kids like to you know see the eggs because you can see the fish eyes through there. You can uh, see the see the uh, backbone, and then it's if you're lucky enough to be there when they hatch, that's kind of interesting too because they're these kind of translucent eggs, and then they sort of reminds me of popcorn. They just kind of <laughs> these little tiny elephant pop out of the eggs and. Kids can, you know, if they're lucky, they can see uh, some of this and watch. And so then you follow them until the spring? They ra- we continue to, r- we raise the fish until the end of April, the beginning of May, and that's when the schools will release. Uh, they Again, they'll release either to Lake Michigan. Uh, uh, the North Shore schools will all go to the ravines. Uh, Chicago City schools will go to uh, one of the beaches. Along Lake Michigan. Which ravines do you go to? Uh, this is the oh the Highland R- Park Ravine, Ravine Drive. Ravine Drive, thank you. And uh, because of the setup of the ravine and where they want to let the fish in, I think they actually use about a forty or fifty foot length of uh, household gutter hmm. as a kind of like a trough. And, uh, and the kids those, their fish those, and those little guys down. down there, yeah. huh? Yep. There's there's a They've restored mm-hmm. the small trout stream in that ravine. All right. And um, how do you, Joe, how do you keep this from completely sucking up all the energy in your classroom <laughs> every single day so that nobody's paying any attention except to the fish? Wow. <laughs> That's challenging. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. See, I'm not making this up. I, I, I think like a, like a six-year-old myself. Careful. So. His one-year-old is watching at home. <laughs> the first day of school uh, – in- I don't know if they care what I say, uh, but they always ask, are the trout coming again this year? And then they come into into class and I want them to go sit down, but they walk right to the tank and say, can I feed the fish now? Or can I change some water? Um, So the kids really, uh, they look forward to the trout. You've got to be careful too uh, about making sure they're not overfed and that uh, the kids are uh, not messing with the the trout and that sort of thing. It's a sensitive uh, tank environment, but... Uh, I've never had any problems, you know, with the kids, um, you know, not respecting the fish. They all really like it. And then um, even, you know, other members of the school get involved, too. You know, my principal, a school engineer uh, will come in to feed them on breaks. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, like it. But it does take up a lot of your a lot of your time in the day. And a lot of focus, yeah. obviously. What? it Not only you need to have focus on it, but it, it, it commands focus yeah. as well, right? And I have other things that I'm supposed to teach besides trout, but I try to, <laughs> um, 
I, I try to <laughs> I try to weave the the program into you know whatever I'm teaching. So uh-huh. I teach a lot of chemistry and um, you know study of. I would think that you can use the trout as a springboard to chemistry. Absolutely, yeah. Each um, one of a good project I had this last year was, um, you know, if you're if you're assessing water quality, um, there are several different tests you can do, and you know, a, a field biologists would do all of them, you know, pretty rapidly, but the middle school kids will assign each uh, kid, um, you know, one test to do, and they research an issue around this water chemistry, um, uh, you know, test, and they, and they create some experiment that that they do in class, uh, you know, with the trout water, and then they, you know, present it to the class, you know, we found that this affects the pH of water, or we found that this affects the amount of nitrates in our tank, so, Mm -hmm. and then they they get some, you know, some hands-on experience Mm -hmm. with it. What about the broader topics of conservation and and uh, restoration? One of the things that was really uh, great was one year at the release day, there were a couple members of the uh, Boone County, um, what was it, Conservation it's, Department? It's, uh, the, no, it's the Boone County Forest Preserves. Yes. They had a couple employees there that were talking to the students about you know, working in conservation and some of the, you know, some of the aspects of their work. The kids really enjoyed that. Um but you know we can we also do connect it you know through research to you know areas such as um uh problems such as nitrate runoff into streams mm-hmm. and and you know we we have a you know a small you know small operation in our classroom where we can learn about nitrates but then they do connect it to big things like the you know dead zones that occur because of mm. you know, algae blooms and nitrate yeah. runoff nitrate yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh, all that uh fertilizer that we you know, this is where we connect that whole thing about lawns and people piling nitrogen on their, their, their on their lawns and phosphorus in their gardens. And where does it end up? Exactly. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and as, as Trout Unlimited, of course, one of our, well, our primary interest here is that we're looking at these school children as the next generation of stream stewards. Mm-hmm. And so we want them to draw the connection to between the trout they're raising in their classroom and the fragile environment they're going to be released into and how to protect that as time goes on. So we do try to visit uh, as many of our schools as possible uh, to speak to the students, to, mm-hmm. to speak on any issues uh, relating uh, to threats to cold water environments, fertilizer runoff, dams, uh, urban sprawl, uh, forest fires. Um, we, uh, bring the entomologist so that they understand the rest of the web of life in that stream. And then at the release, we conduct activities to tie that all together. Well, uh, I want to thank you both for coming into the studio. This has just been great. And, um, it's fascinating. I want to go and see the trout. And maybe to a release. Invite mm-hmm. me to a release. I, I They're a lot of fun. I'd be glad yeah. to have you. Yeah. So uh, folks want to get in touch with Trout Unlimited? That would be through me. Uh, the email is youthed at obtu. How about, how about a website? Org. How about a website? Uh, tu.org. Tu.org. Okay. Yes. That's, that's, that's what we're looking for. Uh, Marvin and Joe, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. 
If you're a landscaper, educator, administrator, or even a homeowner who's figured out that uh, a couple of junipers and a lawn just ain't sustainable, the 2018 Impact Conference is for you. Presented by the Illinois Landscape Contractors Association, this day-long event looks at how plant communities, soil, natural lawn care, stormwater management, and designing for habitat are long overdue parts of smart landscaping. Impact is October 16 at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Go to ilca.net slash impact dash conference. It's the Angelic Organics 11th Annual Harvest Moon Dinner on September 13th, supporting the center's work to bring urban and rural people together to build local food systems. Feast on a freshly harvested gourmet meal designed by executive chef Cletus Friedman at the Scenic Theater on the Lake. Dinner ingredients will be served at peak freshness from sustainable sources. Peggy and I will be there with a bunch of folks who love good local food and fun. Go to learngrowconnect.org slash harvestmoon. Streets Alive returns to Main Street in Evanston on Sunday, September 9, from 1 to 5 p.m., and the Mike Novak Show is proud to be a sponsor. There'll be live music, kids' crafts, pollinator garden tours, bubbles, chalk art, paintings, sports demos, delicious food from street vendors, and the Evanston Green Living Festival for folks looking for products, services, and ideas that promote sustainable lifestyles. As always, Main Street will be open for people to walk, bike, scooter, and skate. For details, visit evanstonstreetsalive.org. If you're looking to invest in an electrical car or truck, make sure to hire a state-licensed electrical contractor. The installation of that charger will require a permit in most municipalities. So make sure to check the ICC website for a certified contractor at icc.illinois.gov. You can also call DNR Services Unlimited. They've been a licensed electrical contractor since 1992. Visit their website at restorethenorthshore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. It'll be easy to find someone cheaper, but a lot harder to find someone better. Three, four, okay. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Must be that time of the day. Uh, we need to bring in meteorologist uh, Rick DeMaio. Mr. DeMaio, good morning and uh, welcome. Good Sunday morning to you, Mike and Peg. And, good morning. Uh, welcome to the end of summer. Yeah, climatological summer. This is the last weekend of it, but boy, it fills every bit of... Uh, the middle of July, doesn't it? It's a little soupy out there today. Oh, yes. man. I, I, I walked out the door. I said, when did I move to Louisiana? I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a change considering what we had around here on Sunday when we had overcast skies, kind of damp, dreary uh, conditions. Readings never got out of the 60s all day. And all of a sudden, you kind of felt the temperature and humidity yesterday kind of increase hour by hour. and. Mm-hmm. And you woke up this morning and you stepped outside of your, if you were lucky to be in an air-conditioned bedroom and house, and you went, whoa, where did this come from? <laughs> but uh, remember, we we talked about this last week, that we're going to get into a warmer pattern, uh, and it's here, and it'll be here for at least three days before it changes abruptly Wednesday morning. Right, right. And then we, it's almost as if, uh, let's uh, wait for September 1st. Although, I, I've, you know, we've seen many years where we get to September 1st and then suddenly it's 90. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I, and, and I think we've seen more of that. And I think, um, you know, this was illustrated really nicely in uh, one of Tom Skilling's weather pages in the Tribune, uh, which now he doesn't have to fear 
of publishing now that Sinclair isn't going to take over, but uh, there was some fear <laughs> right, that, that Sinclair gets a would ding. have taken over W. <laughs> What's that, thing? I said that got a ding. Yeah, well, I just had this idea yeah. of Tom. Tom uh, being told, "Well, Tom, sorry, you, you're you're now an official climate change denier." Okay, just let you know. Yeah, that 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 was a big fear, and and I remember um, it was I think last year, maybe the year before, where him and his team put together about twenty years of data. And they clearly showed that the first uh, frost um, or first freeze, I forget exactly, I think it was the first fall freeze, was happening about a week to nine days later at both O'Hare and Midway. And the title of that post actually said, Is Climate Change Delaying the Arrival of Freezes Here in Illinois? And, and in credit to Tom, no one else on TV even remotely even goes down that path. And not only was it the right thing to say, but we've also seen it. We've seen warmer Septembers around here, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously attributed to warmer oceans, uh, warmer lakes, and also, at times, uh, an increase in tropical weather activity. But clearly, that's not the case across the Atlantic this year. Mm -hmm. No. It's very interesting. Uh, It's it's. I I wonder if we'll see any hurricanes at all, but it's it's kind of strange uh, not to, yeah. to have any of that going on this year. Well, that's why I always point out that you just can't say if then else uh, with with some of the most basic ingredients of a warmer planet. And I, and I and I and I always stress this to students: warmer oceans don't always lead to more hurricanes. If I would give you a lesson on hurricanes and I said the only way you get a hurricane is with a warmer ocean, that would be remiss of me going through all the other things that you need for a hurricane, which is you need very, very weak, low-level wind shear. You need the upper levels of the atmosphere to be difluent in nature. Uh, and we only have one of those three ingredients across the southern Atlantic, partly due to the fact that we've had a very strong jet stream moving across the North Atlantic into Europe keeping them warm, and on the south end of this huge um, Atlantic high-pressure system, you have about 20 to 30-mile-per-hour winds, which basically will go all the way from western sections of Africa all the way into the Caribbean. And studies have shown too much low-level wind shear never allows you uh, to have the center of circulation connect with the upper levels of the atmosphere. We saw that clearly this past week when Hurricane Lane moved north, and basically moved into areas of very, very strong low-level wind shear. And what happened? The hurricane got ripped apart. So you got to be really careful about making, you know, large-scale, long-term weather predictions uh, oversimplified. You just can't do that. Let's talk about the the hurricane in Hawaii just a, a, a yeah. little bit. Uh, did it play out the, the way you thought it would or the way the experts thought it would? <laughs> I think it played out the way that most meteorologists thought it would. It didn't play out the way, unfortunately, the Weather Channel did, which uh, goes to show you when you have a down year, you take one storm and you make a lot of it. Uh, and I was watching their coverage, and I heard a couple of people say there could be 30-foot waves in Waikiki Beach, and I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and when you start to... Well, and, and part of it was also when when a hurricane becomes Category 5, everything changes. So when it became Category 5, which it did for about four or five hours, there was the governor of Hawaii going in front of everybody and said, the forecast has changed, things are different. 
And I'm looking at this, and I'm like going, no, the forecast hasn't changed. Even though it's a Category 5, the forecast still takes the storm anywhere between 100 and about 150 miles west of all the islands. None of that changed. Um, no one thought we were going to get 30-foot waves in Waikiki Beach. No one thought we were going to get any sort of wind speeds over 50 miles an hour on any of the islands. But as soon as you have someone who doesn't really have the scientific know-how going on TV and saying everything's changed, next thing you know, you see people running to the store and buying two-gallon jugs of water, and you have the government telling people that they need to stock up on food for the next two weeks. That's not responsible, and meteorologists, unfortunately, bear the brunt of that in the, in the wrong way. Mm. <laughs> wow. It's uh, so good to hear you, you say that. You asked me, and I gave you the <laughs> answer. <laughs> you know, I I love being smacked in the head with the truth. I think that's uh that's good stuff. So, uh, well, well, the well, well, the bottom line was most everybody thought that the only way you're going to get super heavy rain out of this particular storm was that you blow air off the water, upslope mountains that go from the surface of the ocean to ten thousand feet for three days. And that's exactly what happened. If you see the area that got hit with the heaviest rainfall, it was the east side of the Big Island of Hawaii, basically the Hilo area, which unfortunately had anywhere between 30 and 40 inches of rain. We knew that was going to happen. But if you go to the areas around Oahu and Maui and Kauai, where we actually closer to the storm, some of those places got less than 10 inches of rain. And we knew that was going to happen. And we never thought there was going to be winds over 50 miles an hour. But unfortunately, when this is the only storm that you have to deal with, the Weather Channel kind of pushes it a little bit. And I think they were kind of feeling maybe a little bit like, man, did we push this a little bit too much? They probably did. But I'm not going to over-criticize them. They did what they thought they needed to do. And sometimes weather doesn't go the way the forecaster uh, thinks it's going to go, and you end up with a little bit of egg on your face. Yeah. All right. Well, give us a, a forecast for our area for the next week. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 92 today, heat index probably up to about 100. Some big thunderstorms are going to roll across Wisconsin later on this evening. We'll probably see lightning to the north and maybe hear thunder. I don't think we're going to see any rain here today. Probably not even tomorrow, so the best chance of thunderstorms is probably not until Tuesday. But between now and Tuesday, both today, tomorrow, and Tuesday, each day near 90, heat index at 100, and then much cooler weather for Wednesday and Thursday before we get warm again next Friday and Saturday. So uh, we're 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 still uh, in an area where we could get warm temperatures for the next few weeks, I assume. Without a doubt, the next eight, next ten to fourteen days do bode well for above normal temperatures and above normal precipitation. So we'll fa- we'll probably start out climatological fall the same way we'll end up with climatological summer, warmer and wet. All right, Rick. Thank you so much. We'll Thanks, talk Rick. to you next week. Sounds good, guys. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's on the show today. Susan Han Shetterly, author of Seaweed Chronicles, our friends from Trout Unlimited, Marvin Strauch and Joe Lentino, also Trout in the Classroom, uh, Randall and Ellie. And until next time, go green or go home. Uh, Stadler? Uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. <laughs>